to see you folks and want to encourage you to uh, turn your Bibles to Romans uh, chapter 5. And I'm going to be reading verses uh, 12 through 19 to, to prepare our hearts for where we will hopefully end up this morning in our, our studies. And then I wanted to, to read a, just a section also from um, Voices from the Past that I thought was helpful. And then we'll have a word of prayer. But um, before we get to that, I just, when we pray, we'll be praying for uh, uh, Mark and Kim. Mark was here this morning, Mark Bombardier, uh, to help Rich count, but then he went to be with Kim, uh, who is with her mother, who's in hospice care, and it sounds like it's pretty close to the end there, so I want to be praying for, for those folks this morning. So, um, But turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 12 through 19, um, and then we'll... Uh, look at look at some other material and have a word of prayer. But verse 12, Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam who is the type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose, excuse me, arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. And just a a short section from my own reading this morning was from William Gurnall. Uh, It was included in Voices from the Past. I just thought it was helpful, so I wanted to to share that with you. He writes... uh, Satan is a troubler of our souls. He will test you as to your fear of the future. What will become of you if God should bring you into such and such affliction or trial, when you must burn at the stake or deny the Lord, and when all your outward estate is torn from you and there is no money in your purse? Do you dare to think that your faith will hold out in such an hour of temptation? He is tossing you a snare. He is seeking by the fear of future troubles to get you to neglect your present duty and then be unprepared for your future trials when they come. If a man has a great amount of business to do the next day, he needs to put it out of his mind the night before to get the rest he needs to be prepared for the next day. The less rest the soul has now in God, the less strength it will find to bear trials when the pinch comes. Comfort your soul with three plain conclusions. Number one, every event is the product of God's providence. Not a sparrow, much less a saint, falls to the ground by poverty, sickness, or persecution, but by the hand of God is in it. Number two, God has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God will teach his servants all they need to know. At the first moment of your spiritual life, suffering grace was infused into you as well as praying grace. 
Number three, God in wisdom conceals the comforts he intends to give you at the various stages of your life so that he may encourage your heart to full dependence upon his faithful promises now. Thus, to try the metal of Abraham's faith, he let him go on until his hand was stretched forth to slay Isaac, and then he came to his rescue. Christ sent his disciples to see, but stayed behind himself with a design to test their faith and show his love. Comfort yourself with this. Though you do not see God in the way, yet you will find him in the end. And let us pray. Father, we come before thee this morning and, and thank you that we can begin the day by, by worshiping thee and, and praying to thee and delighting in thee. And we, we pray this morning for our brother Mark that you would encourage his heart and that you would give him uh, wisdom in, in ministering uh, to Kim. We, we pray for Kim as well, that you would uh, comfort her soul uh, these moments with the comfort that you alone are able to give. And we pray for Anne, we, we pray for her soul, that you would uh, cause there to be a receptivity to the word of God in her own heart, that she might be pleased to, to open her heart to receive the things that she has heard. And so we, we pray for our brother and our sister in Christ this morning, that you might minister your grace to them. And Father, as we look at your word together now, I, I would pray for the help and the, the leading of your Holy Spirit uh, to be pleasing to thee and to be a, a help uh, to each one that you've been pleased to bring here this morning. So I would ask that you would guide us and direct us and encourage us uh, by your spirit during our, our time together. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're still trafficking in this, uh, this chapter, chapter 6 in the Confession, which deals with of the fall of man. And um, I wanted to do just a, a little bit of review here with some elaboration, then we'll get into the lesson that you have uh, in, in front of you. But our first study, uh, we considered the, the, the need for this, this whole issue of the fall of man. It helps us to understand history, helps us to understand ourselves, helps us to understand the gospel. Uh, the first paragraph especially deals with the circumstances surrounding the fall, and that was, that's divided into two further areas, or two parts. There was initial uh, perfection, then initial transgression, and we looked at some observations uh, in connection with that. And then just to kind of outline the whole chapter, we noted that paragraph two deals with the consequences of the fall for Adam and Eve, and then paragraphs three and four, the consequences of the fall for their posterity. And then paragraph five, the consequences of the fall for believers. So the, the, this first one that we focused on last time, the consequences of the fall for Adam and Eve and, and what it especially meant for them. And we noticed three points in, in connection with this. Number one, they, they lost the benefits of the gracious presence um, that, that God affords. And I'll say just a little bit more about this. They lost the, the benefits that the gracious presence of God affords. By, by this sin, they fell from their righteousness and communion with God. And as Robert Shaw wrote, that they lost communion with God, who's the chief good. They forfeited his favor and incurred his righteous displeasure. And then secondly, they incurred the penalty which disobedience to God brings forth, and so became dead in sin. They became dead in sin. Uh, Shaw writes, the very day in which our first parents sinned, the sentence of death, though not immediately executed in its fullest extent, begin to lay hold upon them. And they begin to live as Matthew Henry said, a, a dying life. Um, and then one of the things that I, that I tried to inject into that discussion is what the gospel 
begins to reverse the effects of the fall. Uh, death is a terrible reality, as we know. But, but the gospel and the whole situation begins to reverse this because regeneration, by definition, is life and the soul. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And as we notice, reconciliation and adoption both re reverse the effects of, um, of the fall, which is separation from God. So there's a restoration to fellowship to God, and we are adopted into his family and regarded as sons and daughters. Well, then thirdly, they, they experience a defilement, which extended to the totality of their being, wholly defiled in all their parts and faculties of soul and body. As Shaw wrote, they became wholly corrupted in all the faculties of their souls and members of their body. So there was pervasive corruption. Um, and, and again, the gospel deals with that as well, because the, the spirit has a cleansing, purifying effect on the soul. When a person is converted, there is the work of the Holy Spirit. So it begins to, to reverse this the whole area of corruption as well. And, and then um, what I wanted to just touch on here a little bit is um, I emphasize there that uh, there, there is this... Um, loss of the richness of communion with God. Uh, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. And, and this is a, the great tragedy of the unsaved man is that they're cut off from the source of true joy and true happiness, um, which only comes from God. And again, the glory of the gospel is it restores that and restores the, the communion with God so there can be joy and there can be happiness. And just, you know, some texts that we've touched on these recently that relate to this, the, the kind of joy, the kind of happiness that is found in, in, in God through Christ, which is the product of the gospel. In uh, Psalm 32.1, how blessed, how happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, the one who in their soul is assured of forgiveness of sins. Uh, Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Uh, Psalm chapter 40 and verse 4, and I'm kind of cherry picking here a little bit, but how blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust. How blessed, that it means how happy is the man who, who relies on, on, on the Lord. Psalm 65, 4, how blessed is the one whom thou dost choose and bring near to thee to dwell in thy courts. We will be satisfied with, with the goodness of thy house, um, thy holy temple. And then kind of an extended quote from Pascal that I thought was helpful in this connection. He wrote, what else um, does this craving and this helplessness proclaim with respect to unsaved man? But there once was in man a true happiness of which now remained to him only the mark and empty trace. He in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in things present. But, but these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. So he tries all kinds of things to fill this void, but God is the only one who can do that. So just some other related texts, uh, Psalm 84, 5, how blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the highways of Zion, or Psalm 84, 12, O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in thee. So there is, in the gospel, there's this, this restoration of joy and happiness that man lost as a result of the fall. So this morning we're going to continue these studies in, in, in chapter 6. And today we're, we come to paragraphs 3 and 4, which emphasize the consequence of the fall for their posterity. We've, we've touched on this to some extent already, but in paragraphs 3 and 4, 
they emphasize the consequences or the effects of the fall for the descendants of Adam and Eve for their posterity. And our thinking this morning centered around three main points. There's a restriction, and then corruption, and then imputation. A restriction, corruption, then imputation. And um, I hope this is not getting too far off track, but at the top of your notes here, this is another kind of a shorter quote from Owen. And the reason I thought this is so good, because uh, if you're familiar with the Puritans at all, Owen was a smart guy. I mean, he has divisions and subdivisions and subdivisions of the subdivisions. I mean, he was, just, he, was a, he was a heady guy. But here he, he talks about the importance of um, being really affected by what you know. He says the difference between believers and unbelievers as to knowledge is not so much in the matter of their knowledge as in the manner of their knowing. Uh, unbelievers, some of them may know more and be able to say more of God, his perfections, and his will than many believers. But they know nothing as they ought, nothing in a right manner, nothing spiritual, spiritually and savingly, nothing with a holy, heavenly light. The excellency of a believer is not that he hath a large apprehension of things, but that what he doth apprehend, which perhaps may be very little, he sees it in the light of the Spirit of God in a saving, soul-transforming light. And this is that which gives us communion with God and not prying thoughts or curious raised notions. So just kind of a helpful thought there from Owen about knowledge. Okay, paragraph three of, um, of this particular chapter, uh, and I have, I have it in your notes here. It's in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Is That's the, what the, the WCF stands for. They being rooted of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed, and the same death and sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, uh, descending from them by ordinary generation. The, the London Baptist Confession is a little bit more expressive and expansive than that. So if you get a chance later on today, read it. Let me just read it in your hearing. Uh, they being the root and by God's appointment, standing in the room, the room of all, instead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation, being now conceived in sin, and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. So kind of a gospel thought there. Well, and, and then verse, uh, then paragraph four, um, from this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. And, and a good text about this idea of do proceed all actual transgressions would be Matthew chapter 15 and verse 19. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 19. Uh, verse 18 says, But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. And verse 19 of Matthew 15 says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and, and slanders. So that's where the transgressions proceed from. It is from the heart. So now we'll look more particularly at the lesson and first of all, three main headings again. First of all, there is a restriction, a restriction. And here we're thinking about this phrase, descending from them by ordinary generation. Uh, this restriction, to, to quote Robert Shaw, this restriction is obviously introduced to exclude our Lord Jesus Christ, who as a man was one of the posterity of Adam, but did not descend from him by ordinary generation. 
the genealogy of Christ is traced up to Adam, but, but his, his human nature was supernaturally framed in the womb of the virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. In his birth, therefore, as well as his life, he was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separated from sinners. So this is important for our understanding of the atonement because we had to have a, a lamb slain who was innocent and blameless. And some of the texts that would support this, Hebrews 7.26, it was fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Hebrews 7.27, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. In Hebrews 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through this, the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And then 2 Corinthians 5.21 he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So first of all, just kind of a, a caveat there about this restriction. Secondly, universal corruption. Universal corruption. And Shaw puts it like this. The doctrine of original sin was universally received by the church of God until the beginning of the 5th century when it was denied by Pelagius. He maintained that the sins of our first parents were imputed to them alone and not to their posterity. We derive no corruption from their fall, but are born as pure and unspotted as Adam came out of the forming hand of this creator. This opinion was adopted by, the, by Socinius in the 16th century and is held by the modern Socinians. Now, the Arminians who derive their name from Arminius, a divine of the 17th century, may not speak in the same unqualified terms of the purity of the descendants of Adam, but they do not admit that their nature is holy. It's vitiated, that's to, to render faulty um, or imperfect, or that they have entirely lost their power to do good. In opposition to such tenets, our confession teaches that a corrupt nature is conveyed to all the posterity of Adam, and that by this original corruption, we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil. And, just, and here are some of the texts that made that point. I know, I, I, know I, I made this point recently, but it, it's really the Reformed faith, I, I think, that takes the fall seriously. And really, I think, takes the, the, the text of Scripture that man is so um, devastated by sin, he is unable to respond to the gospel. He cannot respond to the gospel unless the Spirit does a work in his heart. And, and some of the texts here, Genesis 6, 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then Genesis 8, 21, this is, like, this is after the flood. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Psalm 51, 5, this is in the context of David's confession of sin. He says, Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And then Psalm 58, 3. Psalm 58, 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. So when they start to talk, they start to speak lies. They're, they're estranged from the womb. Some other comments under this particular heading. Um, in our own natures, we totally lack spiritual good before God. 
Every part of our being is affected by sin, our intellects, our emotions, our desires, our hearts, the center of our desires and decision-making process, processes, our goals and motives, and even our physical bodies. Uh, to the corrupt and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Their minds and consciences are corrupted. Uh, the heart is deceitful of all, above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? In these passages, Scripture is not denying that unbelievers can do good in human society in some senses, but it is denying that they can do any spiritual good or good in terms of, the, of a relationship with God. Apart from the, the work of Christ in our lives, we are like all other unbelievers who are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Um, this, this is why when you see the proliferation of evil in the world, um, it can discourage us, but it really shouldn't shock us. I mean, all you have to do is go read Romans 1 again, and then you realize, okay, this is just the way it is. And it helps us to understand why the world is as it is. Secondly, in our actions, we're totally unable to do spiritual good before God. Uh, Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Uh, John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, uh, he bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, Hebrews eleven six. 6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I think this really makes the point well. It's impossible to please God without faith and no unbeliever has saving faith. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. And then thirdly, Robert Shaw writes, the corruption of human nature, um, which the scriptures so clearly teach, may, be, may also be inferred from the fact that man in all countries and in all uh, various of situation are sinners. And I, I, this is, I, I've touched on this re recently, so I won't make too much of it, but it's really quite amazing, isn't it? Wherever you go, there are sinners. I mean, you can't go someplace and get away from sinners, someplace where you feel like maybe there shouldn't be sinners, you know. I don't know where, like Omaha, you know. They, they are. It doesn't matter where you go. You know, they're, they're, wherever you go, they're, they're sinners. So it, it, it makes this point. And then, relatedly, there are manifestations of moral depravity so very early in childhood as to anticipate all capacity for observing and following the example of others. Then Shaw writes this. There are also frequently appear in children propensities towards those vices of which they have seen no examples. I mean, they, you don't have to teach them to lie. You don't have to teach them to deceive. They will do things. Nobody taught them this. It's by nature. It, it's what they're, what they're like. So, Okay. Then uh, thirdly, uh, imputation. Imputation. Robert Shaw, helpful in terms of definition here. By imputation of Adam's first sin, it is not intended that his personal transgression becomes a personal transgression of his posterity, but that the guilt of his transgression is reckoned to their account. So we're, we're regarded as guilty because of our solidarity with Adam. We're regarded as guilty because of Adam's our federal head and because of our solidarity with him. And it is only the guilt of his first sin, which was committed by him as a public representative, that is imputed to his posterity, and not the guilt of his future sins after he had ceased to act in that character. The grounds of this imputation are that Adam was both the natural root and the federal head, 
or representative of all his all his posterity. So imputed is the idea of God thinks of Adam's guilt as belonging to us. That's the idea of imputation. And um, the scriptural substantiation for this, or our helpful section, is what we just looked at in, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 and then verses 15 through 19. And what's especially brought out in, in this section here, there's a comparison and a contrast between Adam and Christ. Adam and Christ. And Leon Morris wrote the first man, um, not so much concerned about, about um, creation as sin and the, the calamitous consequences that followed. All mankind is affected by what Adam did. Uh, as Adam was the head of a race of sinners, so Christ is the head of the redeemed people of God. And John Murray, another helpful commentator on Romans, wrote, the apostle develops the parallel between Adam and Christ. Adam is the head of the whole human race, Christ as the head of the new humanity. So you, so you have this contrast between the two, a uh, sustained contrast between the process that was set in operation by Adam and the process that was set in operation by Christ. So in Adam, the process is sin, condemnation, and, and death. In Christ, it's righteousness, justification, and then life. So the key here is there is a solidarity that exists between um, Adam and his posterity and Christ and his people. So if you, if you come back here, uh, notice verse 12 of chapter 5. Um, and I'm in Matthew, uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin had entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And this analogy is seen in verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam even to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the similitude or the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is the type of him who was to come. And let me just, let me just uh, reread verses 15 to 19 in your hearing. And your assignment here is to notice the repetition of the word one, the repetition of the word one, beginning in verse 15. Uh, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the justification of the one, excuse me, the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more um, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of life will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then as through the one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Now Charles Hodge comments on this. Um, all that the apostle says tends to illustrate this declaration. This is kind of a clarifying point. Uh, as we are condemned on account of what Adam did, we are justified on account of what Christ did. As we are condemned on account of what Adam did, we are justified, declared righteous on account of what Christ did. So in Romans 5.12, just a, a point of clarification here to kind of finish up. You'll notice toward the end of the verse, these words, So death spread to all men because all sin. Death spread to all men. Why? Because all sin. And Hodge comments, um, sin was the cause of death. We, we die because of sin. So, so death is the punishment of sin. 
death is the, is the evidence of the reality of sin. And, and the sin here it, it includes death of all kinds, spiritual death, eternal death, and, and physical death. Now, the question that arises here is whose sin is Paul talking about here? Um, uh, one writes some. Um, these words, some would say these words can only mean that all have sinned in their own persons. Death is passed on all men because all have actually sinned personally. That is, I will die because I myself have sinned. Some would understand it in that way. Um, what I'm arguing here, that understanding should not be accepted. It should not be accepted. And I'll give you three reasons. The first is a grammatical reason. And I'm going to read here from Leon Morris. And he uses the, the, the term aorist, which it's in the aorist tense, which is point action in the past, as opposed, opposed to a present tense, which is ongoing in the present, or imperfect tense, which is ongoing in the past. He says the aorist tense, um, it ignores the language. That perspective ignores the language he uses. The aorist tense points to one act, the act of Adam. We would expect the present or the imperfect if the apostle were thinking of the continuing sins of all people. And, and secondly, it is not true because many people die without ever committing a sin, namely infants. They die, and there's no way they're dying because of the sins that they have committed because they've never committed a sin. Um, Hodge writes, this interpretation destroys the analogy between Adam and Christ. And Murray says, which supplies the framework of, of, of this passage as a whole. So it doesn't, doesn't fit with the context. Murray puts it, the most conclusive refutation of the view in question is the explicit and repeated affirmations of the context to the effect that, that condemnation and death reign over all because of the one sin of the one man, Adam. The one sin of the one man, Adam. Um, and he indicates that at least five times. For verse 15, for if by the transgression of the one many died. Verse 16, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. Verse 17, for, the, for by the transgression of one death reigned through one. Verse 18, through one transgression the resulted condemnation to all men. Verse 19, through the one man disobedience, uh, many, through, through one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So the way to understand this, as one puts it, is to realize that Paul, he's not talking here about actual sins that people commit uh, every day in their lives, um, uh, because the entire paragraph is taken up with the comparison between Adam and Christ. Uh, the idea that all men sin means that God thought of us all having sinned when Adam disobeyed. He thought of us as all having sinned when Adam disobeyed. He's our federal head. Uh, when Adam sinned, God thought of all who would descend from Adam as sinners. Um, so, I mean, only those who are descended from Adam have a problem here. But um, <laughs> all members of the human race were represented by Adam in the time of testing in the Garden of Eden. As our representative, Adam sinned, and God counted us guilty as well. So, God counted Adam's guilt as belonging to you and I. Um, now, one response to that is, well, that's not fair. I didn't choose, I didn't vote for this guy. I didn't choose him to be my representative. How can I be held responsible um, and, you know, and, and be condemned? Because this was, this was done before I was even born. Um, well, one response to that, there's more than one response. But one is, um, if this is the way that God operates, that's fair. 
I mean, I mean, he 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 sets the rules here. We don't. It's like Romans chapter nine. Who do you think you are to answer back to God? It's fair if it's if God presents it this way, and He does. So, in terms of God defines the ground rules here, and He determines what is fair. Secondly, as one wrote, everyone who protests that this is unfair has also voluntarily committed many actual sins for which God also holds them guilty. Um, so they would have done the same thing. And then thirdly. Um, uh, and this would kind of be the last point here. Um, maybe the most, per, pers- I, t- I talked about this recently, but maybe the most persuasive response um, to the charge of, of being represented by Adam is then uh, we, we should also think that it's unfair for us to be represented by Christ and to have his righteousness imputed to us by God, which we had nothing at all to do with. And we love that, and we glory in that, because it's a means of our acceptance by the being of God. Um, Max Carlton, would you close for us in prayer, brother? Lord God, we thank you so much for these truths that you have recorded for us. And we thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and that you made a way for us to be forgiven through Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we can stand justified before you, knowing that we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith alone. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.